0: Welcome to Totally Unrelated. My name is Diana.
1: And I am Irina.
0: And we're back with part two of uh, the review of a review, (laughs) Abby Shapiro's take on Jonathan Hyde's book uh, called The Righteous Mind. Uh, Irina, a short recap of our discussion so far, if you will?
1: So in our last discussions, we talked about the general concept of the book. The fact that the book has three parts and um, in the first part um, Hyde explains about how moral intuitions arise automatically and almost instantaneously, um, long before moral reasoning. Um, How in part two he presents his research about morality and uh, how in part three uh, he tries to show the usefulness of uh, his research and um, how you can, uh, you can use this knowledge in order to better communicate with people. And um, Madame Shapiro uh, starts, <laughs> um, starts her discussion uh, directly from part 3 and she straight away mischaracterizes the whole intent of the book by excluding uh, a whole chunk of society. That she defines as wokeist, whatever mm-hmm. that is, the bad
0: people. The, it's the
1: bad people. Yeah, it's, it. The, there are def, <laughs> there are definitely the bad people that are beyond salvation, and <laughs> and and she sort of um, goes on a tangent from there, you know. So that was that was pretty much the the gist of it. But she does reach across the aisle to liberals, whom she deems
0: redeemable somewhat until further notice
1: well uh, she definitely does not uh, define these categories like how how do you know who lands in what category but there are definitely only three categories of people and one of them is bad that's how she keeps people on their toes it's like you never know how i'm
0: going to judge you so Mm -hmm. beware
1: yeah so three groups of people one of them are definitely bad One of them are definitely, you know, good and always right, and are the ones in the middle who just need to be convinced to go on the right side. So then we can be like it was always meant to be, just two groups of people. The good people and the evil people. (laughs) (laughs) Very biblical. Very biblical, yeah. Okay, so uh, moving on (laughs) from the the summary. Next on uh, Madame Shapiro's uh, talking points from the book is the acronym WEIRD. And um, what she says about this um, is actually correct. I mean, she sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, makes correct statements.
0: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It happens, even to her. Even a broken (laughs) clock is right twice a day. So,
1: So, um, weird is an acronym that Hyde uses, but uh, that he actually took from uh, the article of some of his colleagues named the weirdest people in the world. Um, The author pointed out that nearly uh, all research in psychology is conducted on a very small subset of human population. People from cultures that are Western, that are educated, are industrialized, rich and democratic and thus forming the acronym WEIRD. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And um, they reviewed dozens of studies showing that WEIRD people are actually statistical outliers. They say that, um, uh, you know, weird are the least typical, the least representative people you could study if you want to make generalization about human nature. And uh, that even with the West and Americans are um, more extreme outliers than Europeans. And within the United States, the educated upper middle class is the most unusual of all. Hmm, curious,
0: curious when it was like, you know, researchers and professors or even activists pointing this stuff out, you know, that studies have a sort of a selection bias. And that may be, you know, uh, for anything that has to uh, do with human behavior, you need more diversity uh, to avoid distortions. Maybe don't always choose... Uh, preponderantly neurotypical individuals of a certain age, sex, socioeconomic status, educational level or cultural background. You know, when it was these people pointing this stuff out, the naysayers were mocking them for, I don't know, being obsessed with the idea of diversity. They would call them basically loonies, blinded by political correctness who just wanted to wedge their politics into the sacred door of science. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lo and behold, uh, this uh, idea becomes very useful to give praise uh, to when you can cast doubt on the scientific validity of the information that your political opponents use to argue their position. I mean,
1: I, I, I talking about outliers, I mean, uh, this sort of discussion that wanting diversity in your study group is only, is only a discussion with a certain segment of, uh, I don't know, Americans or something, because never in science has, uh, well, maybe not never, but at least not in modern science, has ever been a scientist going like, I really think all my subjects that I study should really be all the same. (laughs)
0: <laughs> all my friends actually all my friends who share all my interests and are basically my twins all
1: uh, all, In, uh, <laughs> all all of the studies that had uh, limitations about the the study group because it happens it happens because uh, you don't have enough money you don't have enough time and and stuff like that mm-hmm. and um, always it in the conclusion of any article written about whatever you studied, you also say what the weaknesses of your studies are. Mm-hmm. And this always comes yeah. up, you know, like we, we, had, we, we, we only had time to, I don't know, study this amount of people or only this segment or whatever. So
0: basically what you're saying is that uh, good scientists sort of already knew the limitations of their work. Because, as as you said, because of uh, maybe not having enough resources allocated or enough time to do the study the way they would wish to do it. And they knew this even perhaps before the uh, the the idea was formulated maybe by sociologists or anthropologists. So this is just on the basis of, well, to 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 do better science, we would need maybe more time and more resources, right? So it's not like, oh, this is just a problem, because this is another point that some people bring up that, oh, these are just problems people invented, like, you know, the sociologists invented this problem and or this oppression. And we didn't know that this thing existed beforehand. Well, (laughs) we did, (laughs) but like maybe we didn't have the language to talk about it in the public sphere or maybe it was too technical. To seem relevant to uh,
1: to people outside a very specific domain, and I, I I have to I have to admit that every time I see a public discussion about a scientific paper, the discussion never resembles mm-hmm. the paper, because uh, when you write for you know that what you are writing is going to be a scientific paper, uh, you know that it's going to be peer reviewed. You know that other people that are actually looking to Tear tear down your you know your conclusions are are going to to look at mm-hmm. all those things so you you write it in the correct way but uh, but even ev- even the people who probably do the study well most of them are not public figures but if they are really in love with their idea when they talk about it freely they don't formulate their you know phrases the way they do in a scientific mm-hmm. article. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> So, yeah, but, but what I mean is that in, in the rigorous sense of science, this has been known and discussed and took for, you know, like the granted mm. thing that we, we, we discuss the weakness yeah. of our... Endeavor, um, yeah. Yeah, sure. So one of the, thing, uh, one of the things that uh, Hyde notices about the weird group is their tendency towards individualism, uh, their way of seeing all things just in relation to themselves, and not necessarily as the way that uh, that thing or that action uh, relates to relationships, to context, to groups and institutions. And from there on, Haidt is starting to explain how he went around the world, uh, to see how people from different countries, from different educational backgrounds, from different social economic status relate to moral issues. And um, he came to see that the differences, um, he came to see what the differences and the common ground mm. were. Yeah. You know. Oh, I just wanted to add another thing that
0: I was reminded of uh, when you talked about the whole weird uh, bias. Yeah, mm-hmm. and That sort mm-hmm. of pissed me off when I listened to Abby, because uh, it feels like she's trying to sort of, when she talks about the weird bias, she's trying to sort of flip to her advantage, of course, to her discursive advantage, mm-hmm. the um, whole criticism of you're doing a colonialism or imperialism thing. You know, it's like, oh, you're mm-hmm. imposing these weird standards upon the world and you should know that you're an outlier, which... Uh, This sort of criticism is very valid because it's true that by considering themselves uh, as the measure of all things, the golden standard, the default par excellence, white Mm -hmm. people, well, white men in general, have actually produced some really bad science. And, you know, I don't just mean bad in terms of, oh, I don't like it, it's nasty, get it off of me, but like... (laughs) (laughs) like phrenology, eugenics, treatments for female hysteria. I mean, this is all just some really bad science fails that have uh, uh, had some horrific consequences. So, you know, like I said, uh, this is a valid critique of bad scientific practice. But like, what is exactly is Abby suggesting with it? Like, is she suggesting anything at all? Or does she just sort of revel in the opportunity of calling liberals weird, which I suspect she does?
1: Yeah <laughs> sure. she just sort of says it and doesn't I it didn't necessarily f- uh, feel like she was trying to use the adjective on liberals. She mm-hmm. sort of just uh, you know brought it up <laughs> for yeah. some. More, more, more for the point of saying that somehow uh, her people have been ignored all this mm-hmm. time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, on the one hand, I'd love to believe that she wants studies to do better in picking a larger and more diverse sample group
1: so that the <laughs> results no. they provide are
0: better. But like, I have an inkling that she just wants more conservatives. Yeah, in
1: there, de- so. definitely, definitely. <laughs> that. that that was her uh, that, that was her angle definitely. You know um, here you uh, say things like phrenology and eugenics uh, and all that and uh, and putting them in the science, even if failed science category. Mm-hmm. I realized that it, it is definitely true that uh, going to, to school and having a formal education um, sort of shapes your mind mm-hmm. and my mind just recoils. I'm like, no, nobody ever thought phrenology was a science. Like, no, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Like, my my mind does not go there ever. When somebody says science, for me, it's modern science, and like that was mumbo jumbo. That was like there were no none of the characteristics of any sort of uh, accurate way of looking at things at all. Like, I'm I I honestly think it's in bad bad faith. To call anything before 1950, science. (laughs) But isn't this like a sort of no true Scotsman
0: fallacy? As in, you know, uh, even though... We have bad science today. We have bad
1: science today. But But it's actually bad science. That was like bad storytelling. (laughs) I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but like looking back on it, of course, it's easy to just weed out uh, the, the, the really horrendously bad from what were sort of like the emerging bones of what would become the scientific method, right? Uh, But also, if you think about how it functioned and the role it fulfilled, it did have the legitimacy It did have the power to shape public discourse so in effect it, it, it was fulfilling the role
1: of science even though it was not so i'm i'm, I'm not denying that I'm, I'm not denying i mean uh but you could call it religion just as well you know i, I mean, mean what yeah. what what i'm trying to say is it yes definitely people in power used certain ideas to their advantage and they used themselves, you know, to, to promote ideas that are very revolutionary, like, you know, lords breed lords. Uh. <laughs> the very revolutionary concept of rich people but, just yeah. <laughs> yeah. being better by, you know, virtue of, virtue of their rich. birth.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah but, uh, I mean, if, if you didn't have a structure if like anything goes was actually the norm like if you just had the money and the title um, and you could just say things you can't really be like that was badly done it was not done at all it was just like stated you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean uh, it I think until Sure. Um, p- people started realizing a lot of things. And I genuinely, genuinely appreciate the people who realized the problems they were having way back in the day where it was like nothing there. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the first guy that, that was like, what do you mean you're trying to do, op- you to operate on humans, when you don't know how a human looks on the inside? And we should, we, we should do these pictures every time we cut dead bodies or live bodies and draw pictures so we can all know actually what's going to happen. Faggot, the next... faggot, <laughs> trying to do art, I'll get him out of here. And actually, you know, like, the first guy, uh, this is a, a story uh, from uh, another of Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, uh, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies, and he goes through the story sort of of uh, medical discoveries that led up to cancer treatment, and uh, it's the story of the guy, I don't remember his name, that was like, people, don't, don't you think we're doing this, you know, badly? but. <laughs> I, I cannot, I, I mean, I, I was totally in love with the guy instantaneously going like you're in a whole fucking society that everybody just goes like, yeah, we will cut people up. <laughs> what, what do you do after that? We don't know. And he's like, but we could know, <laughs> you know, and that's how the whole thing of at, Atlas is also the name in, uh, I, I don't even know if it's, it's the same uh, word in uh, English. Yeah, it's it's picture books for people who want to cut other people up.
0: <laughs> Commonly
1: known as surgeons. <laughs> Commonly known as surgeon. Yeah, not serious killers. The artist formerly known as. <laughs> yeah. So sure, there 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 have been people that were just like every all of this is bloody stupid and uh, um, like the guy who. who the first guy who who said uh, also, I mean, I would just go back in time and just like, I would totally uh, worship these people. Um, (laughs) The first guy that said, I think we should stop naming diseases after whatever dude. Uh, We should name diseases with a name that describes the disease. So we'll know, we all will know what the fuck we're talking about. Or instead of naming
0: (laughs) a disease by the nation or uh, people you hate the most at that time you know like the pox was named the french disease by the english the spanish disease or the italian disease by the french or something like that so everyone just named horrendous uh, illnesses after whatever enemy
1: of the day was yeah and like let's let's have a name that is, is actually a fair description of the disease so no matter who's talking uh, has a you know certain sense of what this this whole thing is about so yeah there have been many many people who throughout history uh, realized the limitations of what they were doing mm-hmm. but I, I I genuinely think that up until the time where um, when scientists went up against the um, tobacco industry um, when they, they they started a discussion about um, you know, whether a tobacco causes cancer or doesn't and there were no sort of um, ideas in place about uh, how you go um, to how, how, you, how you can show causality when it is about um, chronic disease and it is about uh, uh, the, the possibility of a multifactorial disease mm-hmm. because p- people knew how, how, how you go about uh, acute diseases with that, that have like one cause you know the infectious diseases mm-hmm. that that was quite obvious and but like how how do you go about a multifactorial chronic disease how do you how do you go about showing causality? and for me that's sort of when science started actually mm-hmm. because that's when they they started to think about we have to have you know, these uh, rules in place about how you do a study, what a study is, what Yeah, Irina, what but where's the is.
0: mystery in that?
1: <laughs> or you know what so, you're going to find when you cut up someone, and you have like standardized names. Um, my my point uh, was that I, I I realized that I'm I'm very I I feel very maternal towards <laughs> science, and I'm like that wasn't the problem. The problem was there was no science. <laughs> Okay, moving on, moving on. Um, Here is where Hyde says uh, what I pointed out in the beginning. He says there's more to morality than harm and fairness. I'm going to to try and convince you that this principle is true descriptively. That uh, is, as a portrait of moralities we see when we look around the world. I'll set aside the question of whether any of these alternative moralities are really good, true or justifiable. He does step outside this paradigm, but uh, he does this on his own opinion. And yes, um, he is annoying when he does it. I mean, I I do mean he is annoying to me, not like universally. Uh, But (laughs) your opinion is the one that counts. Always. (laughs) Uh, So especially because he positions himself as a sort of centrist, although he does not describe himself as that. And my prior bias towards centrist just makes me uh, cringe a lot more at yeah, this. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that the book does that filled me with this glee, is poke a little um, the great thinking men of past, such as Skant. And the book underlines that we want to discover how the moral mind actually works, not how it ought to work. Uh, and that uh, can't be done by reasoning, math, or logic. And um, after describing what WEIRD stands for, Madame Shapiro does one of her evil little things. She takes the descriptive point that for some people uh, there is more to morality than harm and fairness, and says that this is a feather in the conservatives' cap. And then uh, says that the whole point is for conservatives to convince liberals liberals, um, that what they intuitively feel to be moral and immoral is actually the truth by, uh, you know, concocting harm and fairness arguments. She has the decency, somewhat, uh, to say that Hyde does not say this in his book, but she follows by saying that uh, she thought that this is one of the books... Failings.
0: Well, you see, liberals are like your little brother who can only write using all caps. He can only use fairness and harm to interpret the world around him. But it's okay. You know, he's not hopelessly dumb, unlike your progressive <laughs> cousin who can only communicate via finger-painting. Uh, he just needs your condescending guidance. So, you know, <laughs> it's like you have this... Um, uh, what do we call it? This... Uh, white elder brother burden (laughs) that you've taken upon yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she she does sound uh, pretty much like that. Uh, She then passes on to the science part of the book, uh, the part where Hyde makes his claim about what he thinks and the main foundations of morality around the world. But before I get on to that, I have to talk about uh, one particular chapter that I really like in the book and that Shapiro also touches upon, in her own you know, self-serving sort of way, um, the chapter about innateness. This idea about uh, what is and is not innate, and what is the usefulness of knowing that, just keeps popping up, and I think Haidt has some very good points here. He gives this quote. Nature bestows upon the newborn a considerably complex brain but one that is best thing as, uh, seen as pre-wired, flexible and the subject to change, rather than hardwired, fixed and immutable. So the brain is like a book, the first draft of which is written by the genes during fetal development. No chapters are complete at birth, and some are just rough outlines waiting to be filled in during childhood. But not a single chapter be it on sexuality, language, food preferences or morality, consists of blank pages on which a society can inscribe any conceivable set of words."
0: That also that also matches what we've discussed previously with siddhartha mukherjee's yeah. book uh, he also says that like you don't you're not a tabula rasa although no. there, there there have always been these conflicting sort of uh groups uh, the ones who think that oh yes everything is innate and you are sort of your 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 genetics is uh, your destiny and the other group that is like no we can Change everything. People. Yeah, we can change everything about everyone. Yeah.
1: Yeah, pretty pretty much. Since the Nazis and the communists, this has been the debate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no, I'm 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 kidding. Obviously, since before that, uh, <laughs> yes. but uh, but they, they they were definitely ones that uh, took it to the next level. So um, nature provides a first draft, which uh, experience then revises built-in does not mean unmalleable. It means organized in advance of experience. And I think this is one of the best uh, description of what innate is. I, I, I really liked that, organized mm-hmm. in advance of experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So based on these ideas, Hyde proposes that moral foundations are innate. People whose genes gave them uh, brains that get a special pleasure from novelty, variety, and diversity while uh, simultaneously being less sensitive to sign of threats are predisposed, but not predestined to become liberals. Mm.
0: Interesting. But uh, I think that, I mean, of course, people don't usually sit in front of like a selection screen and like pick their political affiliation and then consistently tick all the ideologically appropriate boxes uh, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of their day-to-day choices. and. Uh, Actually, sometimes we point to such incongruences and call people hypocrites, the, you know, the holier than thou traditional values guy who turns out to be a serial adulterer, Mm -hmm. the social liberal who actively supports measures that keep marginalized groups barely scraping by and Of course, fair enough, Uh, some of these cases are clearly signs of uh, hypocrisy. But mostly I think that this is the result of the malleability of built-in tendencies that you mentioned before. Uh, And I think the degree to which one moral foundation is more dominant over another is contextual. So, you know, as Chris Rock put it in one of his shows... I got some shit I am conservative about, I got some shit I am liberal about. So Yeah, Yeah, of course. And I I also think there's this other thing that I'm not quite sure how to describe other than maybe semantics, in the sense that there are different keys in which you can interpret the same instinct that you might have. So for instance, Uh, if you are reluctant to move, uh, as I am at this time in my life, to move outside the country, so to speak, Mm -hmm. having had the experience of living abroad for a few years, and I use this as an argument, the fact that the friendships I have at this moment uh, and the support network that they provide for me at home is something that I value a lot, and I'm not sure I would be able to replicate elsewhere or replicate to the same extent, or within a reasonable time frame. (laughs) So that can be seen as a very conservative streak within me, right? Because there's a certain lack of enthusiasm for novelty, for exploration, for possibly a disruptive change, right? Uh, And you can also read some fear into it, right? The fear of not belonging, but Uh, an emphasis on personal relationships and community over perhaps material benefits and opportunities is also something that many people with sort of leftist political views or maybe humanists would uh, find valuable and would cherish. So maybe moving abroad for the sake of friendship, uh, uh, moving abroad for the sake of maybe money or career opportunities over friendships is something that you could also interpret in that key. So, I I just think like there there are so many layers to this besides uh, just a sort of uh, the share of uh, the sh- the share the stock you have in a different moral foundations. Individuals might adhere to a political team, for instance, at one particular time in their life, and they also might adopt certain stances on issues that aren't actually totally in line with their moral instincts, right? Because mm-hmm. take, for instance, the vehement opposition to abortion uh, that was not sort of part of the conservative menu until a few decades ago. And by that, I don't mean that, you know, all people were okay; Everyone was okay with abortion. No, I I, I just mean it in the sense that it wasn't such a staple, such an exclusively almost conservative stance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And plenty of liberals or people who would define themselves as liberals were also sort of anti-abortion or, you know. Uh, But as conservatives made this pretty much their thing <laughs> yeah. there are probably pl- plenty of those who usually consider themselves as more liberal who readjusted their views on that topic uh, at least in public mm-hmm. and you know on the flip side uh, certainly not every single union leader is by default supportive of gay and trans rights but some have made a point of at least paying lip service to the idea
1: so yeah sure sure people <laughs> People don't live in ideologies. People live in actual life. And uh, there are many, many reasons for why people say the things they say and do the things they do. And uh, not, not always morality or their initial feeling of what is moral is necessarily the basis of what they say and what they do every single time. Mm. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, yeah. Um... Um, Yeah, Hyde also touches on this, saying that individuals tend to develop certain characteristic adaptations and um, life narratives that uh, make them resonate unconsciously and intuitively with the grand narratives told by political movements. Uh, Once people join a political team, they uh, they get uh, sort of uh, into the moral matrix of that political team they see Mm -hmm. confirmation of their grand narrative everywhere and it's difficult or even impossible to convince them that they are wrong if you argue with them from outside of their metrics. So, circling back to the idea of moral foundations, Hyde breaks them down into six dichotomies. Uh, One is care versus harm, two is fairness versus cheating, uh, three uh, loyalty versus betrayal, four authority versus subversion, five sanctity versus degradation, and six liberty versus oppression. Uh, he then explains how some people tend to have just three of these foundations turned up really high, whereas others have all six. It's mostly a matter of degrees for most people, but the degree to which you ascribe moral values to an action or effect makes a lot of difference. On the other hand, Madame Shapiro describes this as liberals having just one foundation, which Haidt never says, and conservatives have having many more. Uh, she really makes a, a mess of this, but, well, uh, she does try to score points, uh, so that is to be expected of her.
0: And just uh, just like as a brief example of what uh, Haidt says when he... Uh, When he highlights that uh, there is a degree to which you ascribe moral values to an action or a fact, Uh, I think he does give an example about the flag, flag burning, or flag using the flag as a sort of to dust something. uh,
1: Yeah, uh, actually, um, um, it's uh, it's not so much. Of course, there are examples, but all the examples in the book. Mm -hmm are actually the the stories that he presented to the people um, he uh, um, talked to for his study. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So that's all of the examples, he gives many, many of them. And um, he also, uh, um, in in the book, you can also go to the link of uh, the, the questions from his study and you can do them for yourself. Um, so, um, yeah, it was that of the, of the flag and I think and, and that of the dog mm-hmm. that, that, that were the ones that sort of stuck in people's minds. The fact that um, he presents uh, this person, actually it was a woman in the example, a woman um, finds this very old uh, flag in the house and she just uses the flag to dust up uh, her house. And then uh, she asks people, uh, he, he asks people if uh, um, they think she can be patriotic, if she can love her country. Mm-hmm. And uh, people um, answer yes or no. Uh, and but what was interesting, because if you understand how he did the studies himself and the people he trained, um, then first ask the question, people give an answer, and then they go, but no, but she's a veteran, like she fought for the country mm-hmm. for, you know. <laughs> Uh, when, when people say she cannot love her country and they, they, they just go like, yeah, but maybe now because she was uh, injured in war. Now she hates her country. And they keep uh, giving these more and more elaborate uh, answers by making up a story. Yeah because, he actually instinct, said that. yeah,
0: because their first instinct was this is repulsive. The woman is using the, the symbol for such a mundane
1: task. And, yeah. and then, from then on, they just started to spin a story. Yeah, because the point is what he's trying to make, that moral intuition mm-hmm. comes before reasoning. And the reasoning yeah. is what you pile on, not in search of truth, but in search of maintaining what your first impression mm-hmm. was. And, yeah. and and the other story is that of the dog, about a family uh, who had a dog, and the dog died of natural causes, and they, they ate him. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know... Uh, is this a moral action or an immoral action? And of course people start uh, with, no, this cannot be a moral action. And they start making up how mm, that family could not have loved their dog and so on. (laughs) You know? But nobody uh, actually have a cohesive argument about why is it bad to eat a perfectly good animal <laughs> <laughs> why 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 wasting the meat is <laughs> a good idea you know and mm-hmm. uh, I, this this one with the dog uh, it was the one i enjoyed telling my f- friends uh, back, back back when i read the book and it, it was funny to see that even my friends that i that they definitely and
0: and i'm assuming
1: particularly your husband's friends who are all dog lovers <laughs> Yeah. mm, No, no, actually not. Uh, I I just mean my friends because uh, my friends are all somewhat liberal inclined and Mm. they all had like this mm, reaction, you know, even if they even if they didn't want to, to, to place a morality stamp on it, they were like, yeah, of course, it's not about morality, but it's bad anyway. And I'm like, but if it's bad, then it's morality. (laughs) <laughs> it's also it's it's also weird because, for instance, uh,
0: ma- many times we don't manage to distinguish distinguish between something that is like, you know, how you say something like. Oh, uh, this is is interesting, uh, an interesting, I don't know, dress or shoe. I wouldn't wear it, but it looks good on other people. Mm -hmm, I acknowledge mm -hmm. it looks good on other people. So, you know, there are sometimes things that, yes, you cannot help but feel unease or disgust. But it's like you can still point out the fact that uh, I wouldn't do it. But like, yeah, it's not immoral per se, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't do it. I definitely feel like I wouldn't do it. So... Usually it's like, I wouldn't do it, it's disgusting,
1: hence <laughs> immoral. Yeah. So. yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, but this is what it's all about, <laughs> uh, this is what the book is all about. So, yeah. circling back to the idea of moral foundations, um, let's also, you know, um, we, we've discussed um, what they are, and then, mm-hmm. um, um, according to Hyde, the moral foundations uh, evolved as follows. The Care and Harm Foundation evolved in response to the adaptative challenge of caring for vulnerable children. It makes us sensitive to signs of suffering and need. It makes us despise cruelty and want to care for those who are suffering. And the Fairness Cheating Foundation evolved in response to the adaptative challenge of reaping the rewards of cooperation without getting exploited. Uh, It makes us sensitive to indications that another person is likely to be a good or bad partner for collaboration and uh, reciprocal altruism. It makes us want to shun or punish cheaters. And fairness is a concern across all types of people. But uh, the more conservative people equate fairness more with proportionality, the idea that people should get what they deserve based on what they have done, whereas more leftist-leaning people equate fairness more with equality and equal rights. And this distinction makes conservatives say that liberals don't care about fairness and actually also the vice versa is true. Because of these uh, differing interpretations of fairness uh, and cheating foundation that people have, uh, Haidt uh, split the idea of fairness and also added uh, liberty versus oppression as a separate category. So, liberty versus oppression makes people notice and resent any sign of attempted domination. It triggers an urge to band together and to resist or you know, overthrow bullies and tyrants. This foundation supports the egalitarianism and uh, anti-authoritarianism of the left, as well as the don't tread on me and uh, give me liberty anti-government anger, Of libertarians and some conservatives. I mean, this is uh,
0: peak centrism here, because come on, it's not the same when, you know, as a libertarian, you're all about freedom, 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 and don't tread on me. But also you're very big on having the police and the army to enforce the things that you deem are necessary. So I don't know, it's it's a bit sketchy, but but fair enough, he wants to ingratiate himself with both uh,
1: ends of the spectrum, I guess. I, I, I don't think it's about uh, trying to make himself look a certain way. I think he just uh, points out what certain groups actually say about themselves. He doesn't discuss uh, if there are inconsistencies mm-hmm. uh, among the many views of a certain category. Oh yeah, but that's fair enough. He, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, the Loyalty Betrayal Foundation evolves in response to the adaptive challenge of forming and maintaining coalitions. It makes us sensitive to signs that another person is or, you know, is not a team player. And uh, it makes us trust and reward such people. And it makes us want to hurt, ostracize, or, you know, even kill those who betray us or our group. And then the authority, subversion foundation, evolved in response to the adaptative challenge of forging relationships that will benefit us within uh, social hierarchies. It makes us sensitive to signs of rank or status and to signs that other people are or are not behaving properly given their position. And the last, the sanctity versus degradation foundation, evolved initially in response to the adaptative challenges of the omnivore's dilemma and then to the broader challenge of living in a world of pathogens and parasites. It includes the behavioral immune system, which can make us wary of a diverse array of symbolic objects and threats. It makes it possible for people to invest objects with irrational and extreme values, both positive and negative, which are important for binding groups together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the flag. So... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Hyde takes uh, some time to explain why the Democratic Party in the US is not more popular and uh, why it loses more than it wins. And uh, I have to agree with him, I mean, his points were valid, Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, he, he points out all the ways in which Republicans know how to address the elephant and not the rider, and how Republicans have monopolized some themes such as family, religion, and the military and uh, shows that there is no reason the Democrats could not reframe these themes and use them to convince people about their own policies. But they just don't.
0: Mm. Yeah, Uh, I mean, we're making the assumption that Democrats actually want to win. And I mean, (laughs) I mean this in the sense that they would want to win so that they can then enact an agenda that got people excited. Uh, Mm -hmm. In previous episodes, I talked with Elisa uh, about how many radical parties in the late 19th century and early 20th century were so good at crafting attention grabbing speeches, uh, images, catchphrases and stuff like that, because they wanted to grab political power and actually use it to affect society, you know, for better or worse. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was only natural for them to have a strong stance on loaded issues, such as religion, the family or the military, because they were outside uh, the halls of power and uh, they had a limited patience or deference towards protocol, civility or being rational or factually correct. And, you know, meanwhile, just as today, uh, <laughs> liberals of yours seem to be sort of trapped in a rational bro universe. They would say things like, surely, if we give the people the right information, they will rationally assess the facts and come to the right conclusions. (laughs) (laughs) But like, emotions play a pivotal role in politics, and that's a feature, not a bug. Uh, People need to feel inspired to be jolted out of their default, uh, yeah, yeah, whatever state. And uh, especially when we're talking about sort of, A scope that goes beyond uh, individual ambitions and uh, yeah you know politicians like Obama provided inspiration in spades but unfortunately that was just a sort of emotional spark that quite quickly fizzled out uh, without clear intentions that would then translate into actions uh, because you kind of want to have all three to, uh, to capture the public's attention and govern effectively. One, you need the message that moves people emotionally to the actual intent on making good on your promises and three, capturing the means to do so. And uh, Democrats in the US, they sometimes get lucky with a once-in-a-generation charismatic uh, public uh, speaker whose uh, words create a lot of excitement, uh, but they repeatedly fall short on the action side. Uh, That has happened so frequently in the past couple of decades that I'm not uh, frankly surprised that many are questioning uh, the party's intent on actually doing something when they uh, get into power, and they see them more as men of the system, preoccupied with securing a place within the structure rather than using the structure, so to speak, to, to
1: help their constituents. I mean, I think you went into a very complicated place. Um, <laughs> and, I th- and, and honestly, I think you just did it because that's how you think. Because mm, okay. the easy uh, way to think about things is this. For sure, everybody wants power. I mean, if mm-hmm. you go into politics... Uh, I I don't mean, like, everybody, everybody on the planet, but, like, if you do the the work, and it is work, like, Mm -hmm. I've been for two years and a half in a political party at a very low level, you know, just for for my community, and it takes a lot of your time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, uh, the people who actually uh, want to be, I don't know, uh, they they run for Senate, or they run for uh, Congress, or they run for President, they actually want the power. And... Uh, Republicans, it's not like they do something to um, actually improve people's life. So mm-hmm. what Hyde is saying is that okay, um, you realize that you could get more votes by actually also talking about family. You could totally reframe, let's say, you're having healthcare uh, as this whole thing about how that could improve the life of your family. Absolutely, Whether- make it conservative. Yeah. <laughs> Whether, whether or not you manage to actually do some sort of law, you can keep talking about it for years on end, and you can keep winning. For, mm-hmm. Because this is what Republicans do and Democrats don't. Uh, it's not like the Democratic Party is a party of doers, you know? It's a party also of talking points. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the point Hyde was making was that the talking points of the Democrats are really lame. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? I mean, you could, uh, after they win, uh, talk about how they don't deliver or whatever, but they even Obama... Um, Wait, well, they do
0: deliver, but I think to a very specific segment of the population, and that is one of the problems, because both parties are very good at passing certain things that <laughs> don't necessarily benefit the world at
1: large. Yeah. Oh well, let's not uh, let let's go back to let, <laughs> let's go back to Hyde and Madame Shapiro. Um, so um, Madame Shapiro's last minutes of the review, uh, she points out that all conservatives have to do is to explain how religion and family values and so on are good. And yes, some people might use them for evil, but you know, just ignore those because you know. <laughs> It's not the value in itself that might cause the problem, but the evilness of the people. And uh, just focus on all the good that can come from uh, religious views and such. And she has this uh, delicious take at the end. When you don't have real religion, you make one up. And I just you know, laughed (laughs) out loud at this one. Like, she said this in the context of uh, trying to explain why some people treat their political views as religion, uh, which, you know, fair point. But still, the way she framed it, (laughs) it was so damn silly, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And also,
0: I just don't get it. Because on the one hand, uh, she berates, well, you know, liberals and people on the left for the fact that basically they don't have the strong convictions that a religious person might have. Like, they don't have like a moral compass or, you know, a guiding light that Mm -hmm, mm is a guiding set of principles and... Mm -hmm uh but also uh you know when they do have that <laughs> they are uh you know their uh, th- their values are made into a religion and she says that like it's a bad thing mm-hmm. but like so basically she's not actually saying that there's a problem with 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 sticking religiously to some principles or other basically what she's saying is that not all religions are valid as we all know there's but one true god and his name is allah
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no her, her her point is that you do have to to be uh, extremely obsessed with following the rules as long as i make them of course we Which, you know, fair enough, I I feel the same. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Looking forward to that Irina-Abby (laughs) deathmatch.
1: So, next, Abby just goes on for about two minutes about how liberals don't understand conservatives, (sighs) but um, Hyde said that in the sense that liberals don't understand how to appeal to conservative emotions.
0: You know, you you just don't, like, get me. I'm not like the other girls. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but, like, uh, seriously, now, uh, Abby also says here that liberals are too focused on individuals uh, to understand the value of community. And uh, talk about things that make uh, you roll your eyes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Because... Yes, it was totally a liberal or a leftist who said that there is no such thing as a society, just a living structure of individuals, families, neighbors, and voluntary associations. There is no common good, but just a constant back and forth between individuals and groups to negotiate their interests. You know, totally forgetting that individuals don't have the same negotiating power because, you know, we start from a position of inequality, and that's the... Cole got the reason why people started banding together <laughs> <laughs> and you know yes there is a merit to the idea of encouraging people to do as much as possible at the local level in small in 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 smaller more agile networks of solidarity uh, rather than to wait around for a response from more sluggish centralized structures y- yes that's true but You don't build a national railway infrastructure for a neighborhood fund, Abby. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know, I just get so annoyed by how inane this argument is. And um, before I fly off the handle here, uh, it has to be said that there are some conservatives who do think that unchecked individualism can be detrimental. Uh, when people aren't embedded into society in any meaningful way, they feel alienated. So, you know, like we discussed uh, about when we had the episode with uh, Karl Lüger and the Christian socials, they this was mm-hmm. one of the uh, points they criticized about liberalism and individualism. But at the same time, the, so- the same self-described conservatives will throw the idea of solidarity out the window when it comes to concrete measures like resource reallocation, uh, making public services better and more easily available to all of us. You know, the things that actually provide people with the boots they need for the whole bootstrap narrative they like so much. (laughs) And I feel like there's something really callous about being like, yeah, 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 community, it's a good thing. Except actually what I want is to sort of Fence off solidarity between income groups or races or whatever. And, you know, the poors and the uh, non-white people can be solidarity among themselves if they want to improve their lot in life. But they better not ask (laughs) for anything from me. Sorry, this was just like a pet peeve I wanted to just shove into... <laughs> this, but I, yeah, I, I just get sl- slightly triggered when I hear any discussion about the importance of community and how you don't get community, you you lefty or you liptard and like.
1: Oof. Well, um I mean, this is not the place. It's but always I the think place. One of the many many problems. <laughs> One of the many, many problems of um, the discourse in America, um, because it is not necessary the discourse everywhere, it just feels in Romania that it is, all, it is everywhere because mm-hmm. Romanians are obsessed with Americans. Uh, <laughs> but um, in America, they um, conflate every, every time they, they talk about left and right, they, they conflate the... Um, Economic orientation, because left and right is more of an economic orientation, and they conflate it with the social orientation uh, between, you know, authority, that that would be, uh, the extremes would not be left and right, would be libertarians and, you know, Mm -hmm dictatorship or authoritarianism at the other end. And you can definitely have a, a left authoritarian or a left libertarian, because like libertarians, the, the first libertarians, weirdly enough, were leftists, actually. And uh, you can definitely have a, a, a right libertarian, that are the people that generally uh, we think about. Um, and uh, we, you can also have a, a, a right authoritarian. But the the fact that that, that people conflate the economical axis with a somewhat uh, structurally, socially, whatever structure, uh, makes the conversation even stupider than, you know, it already is. Mm. (laughs) For for me, anyway. Uh, So, um, Madame Shapiro goes on to say other stupid stuff, (laughs) uh, like... (laughs) Like the fact like the fact that liberals don't understand that conservatives are just right yes. about you know everything and uh, and in, in, if only they would understand then liberals would also want the exact same policies yes, conservatives because want there is no such
0: thing as conflicting interests no no no, no. <laughs> i feel like there is so much division in the animal kingdom you know uh, there's no reason why carnivores and herbivores cannot reach across the aisle and hearken back to the good old days of bipartisanship
1: <laughs> to- to- totally no So, all in all, Madame Shapiro took some points from the book and ran with them into her own purpose, um, mainly. Which, you know, it's after all understandable uh, if one read the book. It is what the book is all about, which makes uh, Shapiro's take actually funny, but also useful in a sort of case study sort of way, you know?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, So, moving on from um, whatever uh, Ebi Shapiro said. Uh, The third part of the book is about uh, the human tendencies to be groupish. Uh, Here is where um, Hyde tries to make a case for his idea that group selection exists. He has some interesting ideas. Um, One can read them and can remain uh, agnostic, you know, science-wise about them. Uh, Mm -hmm. But they are not some crazy thoughts, and I find them useful, regardless of whether or not group selection can be proven to exist. So Hyde talks about the major transitions in evolution that are rare, but even uh, if rare, they have been the most important in shaping life on Earth. And how these um, major transitions uh, have been the one uh, who favored um, major selection, favored groups, favored group selection and adaptation, and not just, you know, the individual selection. His, uh, his second reason for group selection Um, is uh, shared intentionality, and uh, what he means by this is the ability to share mental representations of tasks that two or more people can pursue together. And he points out that this must have been a very important moment in our species' evolution. He says that when everyone in a group began to share a common understanding of uh, how things were supposed to be done and then felt the flash of negativity when any individual violated those expectations that's when the first moral matrix was born
0: you know basically how do you actually put on the paper uh, the toilet paper roll yeah
1: that's like we all know how it is correct and yes, let's not go there exactly
0: and we shun everyone who does it incorrectly <laughs> absolutely
1: and um, he even points uh, to the idea that the, uh, that language could have arisen only after the development of shared intentionality. Because a word is not a relationship between a sound um, and an object. It is an agreement among people who share a joint representation of the things in their world and uh, who share a set of conventions for communicating with each other about those things. And uh, the third point around group selection is that genes and culture uh, co-evolve. So that culture at any point, um, and by culture, he means uh, any sort of group activity. Uh, I mean, for him, domesticating animals is part of culture. So domesticating animals um, led some people to keep drinking milk because it was, you Mm -hmm. know, easily available. And that led to a mutation for the digestion of lactose during adulthood and that led to more animals being raised and, you know, that changed society. So, yeah. <clears throat> so culture at, uh, at, at any point can put pressure on individuals uh, and uh, in doing so, uh, fostering group cohesion, uh, suppressing aggression and uh, free riding within the group and defending the territory shared by the community.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, his fourth point is um, that even if uh, evolution is slow, sometimes it can also be fast. Uh, I honestly uh, did not do the reading to see uh, if, uh, what he says here, because he gives some examples, and uh, I did not check them, so I did not put them here. Uh, sounds, uh, sounds very Leninist. Because
0: uh, uh, I think, wasn't, he, wasn't Lenin who said, like, there are uh, centuries or decades where nothing happens and weeks in which decades happen or something
1: of that sort? I am not exactly a Lenin scholar, so I have no idea what Lenin said. Yeah, yeah. So in sum, um, Haidt's point is that our minds were designed not only to help us win the competition within our groups, but also to help us unite uh, with those in our group to win competition across groups and that we developed the ability, you know, under special circumstances to transcend self-interest and to lose ourselves, you know, temporarily and ecstatically in something larger than ourselves. And um, Hyde says that we can see these special circumstances of temporarily and ecstatically group's action in things like religious group gatherings, but also in things like uh, sport events or raves. And, um, you know, in an intuition kind of way, I, I really felt his point.
0: Yeah. Especially when it comes to sports, I think. Yeah, you can
1: totally see it. Yeah, uh, uh, something uh, growing so big, even if it has like no importance, that people could kill you for it in that instance, and they wouldn't know why. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not just like the highly emotionally charged moments like supporters, as you said, getting very aggressive or very, yeah, hostile maybe towards the opposing team, but also in things like uh, maybe if the, I don't know, the local club has financial problems and mm-hmm. uh people who wouldn't usually be like yeah sure public funds use them for i don't know helping people in need mm-hmm. they they will many many a times they will be like yes use use the money from my taxes yeah. to, to save the i don't know the football team yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Have, have my pension fund for my, for my football team yeah yeah,
1: uh, yeah <laughs> which
0: is if you think about it so Insane. irrational i mean yeah. yeah
1: yeah so the book ends Uh, with the um, um, defining of what morality is for Hyde. He says that moral systems are interlocking sets of values, virtues, norms, practices, identities, institutions, technology, and uh, evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or to regulate self-interests and to make cooperative societies possible. Hyde's conclusion is that morality binds and blinds. It binds us into ideological teams that fight each other as though the fate of the world depended on our side winning, you know, each battle. Mm-hmm. And it blinds us to the fact that each team is composed of good people who have something important to say. Radical centrism strikes it ag- again. <laughs> yeah, no, he really doesn't, doesn't mean it in a radical centrism kind of way. N- not in the, the, the truth is in the middle kind of way. But uh, in the fact that uh, when you are, you know, s- just screaming at the other person, you might sort of lose some of the actual arguments. I, I,
0: th- I think that it's also the case that, as you said, because a lot of, especially in politics, a lot of uh, the discussion has been turned into basically a sport, sport-like event. In the sense that people uh, pick a team if they are involved in the sporting event at all. Uh, They pick a team and then they just stick to their colors regardless of whether or not actually even the stuff that the team promotes hurts them or not. And I think Mm -hmm. that this is even more, uh, this is even worse than just, you know, maybe, oh, people on the other side might also have something good to say. It's uh, sometimes you just go in for a team that is actively doing things that hurt
1: you. So, yeah. Yeah. So now it is, you know, it is crystal clear that Haidt talks about what morality does and uh, not about what is moral or about who wins the debate about what is good and what is evil. He clearly states that uh, doing a scientific descriptive paper about morality is very different from the field of normative ethics that is uh, concerned with figuring out which actions are truly right or wrong. And the funniest part, after also reading the book I mentioned in the beginning, Moral Tribes, uh, is that Hyde endorses utilitarianism as the only version of normative ethics that with some modification and with full knowledge of descriptive morality could be embraced by all the human race. And the reason I think this is funny is because Joshua Green, you know, the author of Moral Tribes, uh, he somehow argues in his book, he, he mentions Hyde, and he says he wants to argue against Hyde. And... Um, you know, as if Hyde might oppose uh, utilitarianism, which he really doesn't, but also uh, Joshua Green sort of acts and I'm, I'm I'm sure in the case of Joshua Green, the author, he just does it for, you know, his own purposes, because I'm sure he understood that Hyde was writing a descriptive book and not a normative book, but he somehow acts like <laughs> that's what the book was. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think, like, the Hyde's, uh, Hyde's biggest problem with this book is how everybody else talks about it. <laughs> Nobody gets him. Nobody gets him. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't really think. Uh, I, I, I don't think that it's one of those things where things are very complicated. It's just that people read it and then were they were like, "How can I make this useful for me?" Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is actually what the book is all about. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, that's the, that the, yeah that's how we are as you know animals that's how we function
0: yeah yeah well i i guess we're we're done right we're done with yeah. this yeah well, we've made the best of uh, yet another book
1: that we've read <laughs> and that that we encourage um actual if if anybody's actually interested and listen to this conversation Highly encourage mm-hmm. people to actually read the book.
0: Um, so thank you for listening, and if you enjoy this podcast, don't don't forget to follow us and share any episodes you like on, you know whatever social media you might be active on. And uh, if you have any suggestions, hate mail or encouragement, <laughs> uh, we await them uh, uh, via email, or you can hit us up on Twitter. Um, And I
1: guess that's it. Bye. Bye bye.